everyone. Welcome back to But What Will People Say? I'm your host, Disha Mazeppa, and this is a South Asian interracial relationship and lifestyle podcast. Welcome back for another episode. Welcome back, guys. I hope you guys had a good week. You know, one of my big goals for this year was to incorporate more money and finance related episodes. And so this is the first one. It's with Zafreen on Instagram. She is known as the Pay We Deserve, where she teaches women how to negotiate salaries and raises. And we talk all things negotiating salary, talking about money at work, negotiating a raise, and even finances between couples once you're married and how to explore having those conversations and, you know, finding your comfort zone and where you lie and who manages the money and how it's managed. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I think it was really insightful. Also, sorry, this audio sounds a little weird for the intro. I'm not using my usual mic setup. Um, I'm not at home. And apparently, GarageBand doesn't let you record with your AirPod headphones, like even though they have a built-in microphone. And so I'm like literally using the microphone that is built into my MacBook. And so it probably sounds a little weird, but don't worry. The rest of the episode should be the usual. Thanks for the patience. You guys are awesome. Let's get to it. All right. Hi, everybody. We're here with Zafreen. You may know her as the Pay We Deserve on Instagram. And she is also a former guest of mine's sister. She is Nasheen's sister who hosts the Self-Worth Edit. So if you haven't checked out that podcast, do that too. Check out her Instagram. But hi, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I am a fan of you, of your podcast, and just your brand and who you are. So I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited to hopefully uh, get in touch with some of your audience and like-minded people. So I'm thrilled to be here. I'm a fan of you too. And I think more people need to know who you are. So hopefully (sighs) this helps reach some people who could benefit from knowing you. For those of you who don't know, she helps women with negotiating salaries. But I will let you explain more about that. Tell us what you do and what your Instagram page is all about. Yeah. So uh, the pay we deserve is uh, the business that I started last year. And it's all about helping women negotiate their salaries. Specifically, my target group of interest is first generation women of color, because I think a lot of us know the challenges that these women in particular face in the workplace, the pay disparities that they face, and the different communication styles I think a lot of us grew up with and are used to that you feel like have to be used in negotiations. There's just so many different prongs to it for the subset of the population. So that's my focus group. But really, I want to empower women, all women, to be able to negotiate confidently and um, tactically and strategically. So a lot of what I do is around confidence building, especially on my social media pages. But if I were to work with someone one-on-one, it becomes a lot more tactical, strategic about you, your specific situation. We build a script together so you know what to say um, for different situations that arise with the person that you're negotiating with. And then we role play and I pretend to be your manager. Like, There's a lot of different pieces to it that I think we can actually 
do before a negotiation to be successful. Um, but yes, so I do some of the tactical work, but also the confidence building and the mindset work around negotiation. That's awesome. And I love that because obviously like the pay disparity between men and women in general is pretty self-evident. Um, can you talk more a little bit about that? Because I feel like there's always this debate about like, is there a glass ceiling? Isn't there a glass ceiling? Are women choosing to leave the workforce? Um, especially like during this pandemic where like most women seems like they left the workforce. And as a lot of people don't admit that like all these lockdowns force women to quit their jobs, not the men because they mm-hmm. stay home with the kids. Gosh, I could talk about this question alone all day. Um, so just thinking about women leaving the workforce um, during the pandemic, and you're right, you're so right. It's because despite, I think, a lot of the intention that we have in our relationships, um, in our romantic relationships, um, in household relationships, I think uh, women tend to take on a whole lot of responsibility with kids, with other life things, um, taking care of parents. A lot of women have left the workforce also because they're taking care of elderly parents, and that typically falls on young women, daughters in the family. So I think that is very real. Um, That is a very, very, it's just very much a reality. Um, And in terms of the actual pay disparity, Research year after year, even this year, shows that it's definitely persisting, the pay disparity between men and women. Some sites and sources um, say that it's decreasing ever so slightly, but then something like this happens, right, where women are pushed out of the workforce and it sets you several steps back. So there's a lot that goes into it. Um, And then within, within the group of women, we know that women of color Uh, specifically Latina and Black women make the least. Um, And then, you know, other races kind of shake out in between, but white women make the most out of when we're looking at women. So there's just a lot that goes into it. All of these pay disparities that we've heard about over the past several years, they they definitely persist um, and exist today. Yeah, definitely. And one of the reasons for these pay disparities is something you address is negotiating your salary and being better at negotiating and being on the other side of that table and asking for what you deserve. So what are some ways people go into like navigating, like negotiating their salary and like some advice for just approaching that? Because for some people, it can be really daunting. Yeah, it can be so daunting. And I think, again, it comes back to women in general are conditioned in a way that we're told we're raised to ask for less in a lot of ways. Maybe not outright ask for less, but, you know, just be, we're set up to be be, more reasonable. Yeah, be more reasonable, be accommodating. Like all of these types of words um, fit women and are assigned to women. So I feel like we hold these emotions, this feedback that we've gotten through the years from family members, from previous managers, and we hold that in negotiations that we go into. Or even when we think about going into a negotiation, it just feels impossible because there are all these ways that we should be. And all of those ways that we should be also impacts our confidence around negotiation period, our understanding of how to negotiate. I will say, at least my experience as a South Asian woman, I also had really no examples of women, of people 
period that had negotiated. My parents are not in the corporate world, so you know I wasn't necessarily going to them for advice. I have some older um, individuals in my family, like cousins and things like that, but they're all first generation figuring this out. So a lot of it was like, hey, that first salary that you got, that's great. Just stick with it. Accept it. That's that's awesome. And that was the advice because that they would essentially translate that fear of the offer being rescinded to me if I negotiated. So I thought all of that was normal. Um, and it wasn't until I had sort of a terrible and very frustrating, annoying work situation happen where I was forced to learn how to negotiate that I learned I could negotiate. Um, so some of the actual um, tips around it are what I was talking about, like scripting and just all the things that I learned in my first negotiation is what is what I help women with. Yeah. And that's like, I feel like some people, like even I have had friends, like I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten much more confident in like the experience I have. And like, it's a little different for me because I work in healthcare. There's a little bit less negotiating and a little more like this is the standard rate. Um, But one thing that I think has helped is pay transparency. And a lot of people sharing and millennials are great about just straight up telling you how much money they make. And this situation happened at my job where one of our therapists, she was a millennial, came in and within the first week said how much money she was making to the other therapists. And there are therapists there who literally have been there longer than her with more experience that were making less money than her. And within that week, they marched into the director's office, went to town. Obviously, they all got a raise because you can't do that. Mm -hmm. But also the director went up to her and says, you know, you really shouldn't be talking about how much money you make. And I'm like, you're just old and you don't like what just happened. And I was thoroughly amused. Yes. So very recently at work, I had the same situation with a coworker where we just decided to exchange our salary information. And we talked openly about how really keeping the information from each other only helps our employer. It doesn't help either of us. And the exchange of information is so important to ensure that we're being paid what we should be being paid and that we're getting the pay that we deserve. And so it was just so refreshing. And like you're saying, like just the candidness with which millennials share how much they make is awesome. And it's information that I can actually use like for next year's year end. It's information that she can leverage. And I think it's really powerful because you're not helping anyone except yourself and your coworkers. And why not? Exactly. And there is the culture, I think, in corporate America and big corporations in general where they they almost make it feel like we're doing like you owe us everything. We give you a job. So you should be grateful to be here and everything we do for you should be met with the utmost gratitude. Yeah. And I think millennials are slowly shifting that. I think Gen Z has straight up flipped it on its head. And I appreciate it because I think that's like such a toxic mentality to put into your workers that because it makes them feel like they owe you and that it's not an equal transaction and that it's a two-way street and both parties are supposed to be helping each other. Mm -hmm. And I do want to say one more comment on the fact that the director went up to someone who shared their information and said, you shouldn't have done that. Like, 
just the number of times that I hear of situations like that, that I've been in situations like that, it's totally a fear tactic and it's frustrating and just calling it what it is will help all of us because I think some people resist sharing information because of that fear. And I know why that exists. We hear these stories and we hear, you know, there are cases where you can get fired for it. You really can't get fired for it. Um, If you do, that is that is a problem. And that is a huge organizational issue that we won't even get into, but it's your information. You're allowed to share it and with whoever you please. Yeah, exactly. And like, I think, especially if you're in a big corporation, they usually bring lawyers into the room when they're talking. If if you're talking to HR, there's probably a lawyer in the room because Mm -hmm. so much of it is built on liability and having a paper trail and like constantly protecting the company. And I always try to remind people, I'm like, the company is a separate entity. It is not a person. That's why they establish a company. It is separate from all the people that work for it. And it should be mm-hmm. treated as such. Like they owe that company owes you just as much as you owe them. And I heard a really like I think I shared it on the podcast a while ago. Somebody said, like, you aren't negotiating for yourself as a woman. Like you're negotiating so the women who come after you don't have to fight as hard. Yeah. And like if you don't negotiate, all the data shows that like you lag behind in raises and promotions in significant years of work compared to other people who are in the same position as you but did negotiate. Because even before you walk in the door as your first day as an employee, you've already set the precedent to the company as who you are in this yes. giant minefield that you're walking into. Yeah. So much about that too. Like I definitely agree. You're not just negotiating for yourself. You're negotiating for all other women. If you're first gen women of color, you're probably also literally negotiating for extended family, other people that you support in your circle. And in terms of that other topic that you hit on coming into an organization and their perception of you, like digging into that a little bit, there has been research done that when you negotiate, you are perceived in a different way. You are perceived as a stronger candidate and as a stronger employee. So even when you get pushback and even when it gets uncomfortable, and I think a lot of us as women, we're thinking, oh gosh, like this person thinks I'm greedy. This person thinks I'm this or that. Um, Really what they're ultimately going to think about you is oh, that person knows how much their work is worth. And I respect that because they built a good case. And that's, again, like what I'm all about is building a good case. I think, yes, some of us are in situations where we're severely underpaid. And so we should just be able to ask for the sake of asking. But when you have a solid case, that is so important to build up because you can't really deny a really good case for a pay raise. Yeah. And like you said, like it's a it's a matter of respect because they see that you value what you're worth. Because if you go into a job and you just take the first offer and you don't even try to negotiate, that sets the bar later when you decide or you realize you're not getting paid enough and you walk in the room asking for a raise, they already have a little bit less respect for you. And it's a lot easier for them to push back and be like, oh, you know, there's just nothing we can do about it. I'm like, that's mm-hmm. never true. That has literally never been true in the history of time. The company right. always has money for a rate. Always. 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 You have to ask, right? And they're not just going to hand it out. Like the other feedback that I get from certain clients is like, well, or even prospective clients is like, I just don't get why I even have to ask or why I have to build a thorough case. Like they should just, my organization should just give me 
money for all the work that I'm silently doing. And it's like, that's the other big problem, I think, with women in the workplace. Um, Again, a lot of it through conditioning is like, we're really bad at self-promotion and talking ourselves up and we silently do the hard work and we're like, no, it'll get noticed. And, um, it won't. you know, my, my employer will just recognize, you know, from the goodness of their hearts, like what I do and they'll give me more money. It's like one, they have no incentive to give you more money. We think that they do because, oh, they want to retain us, but you're doing the work already and getting paid less. So do they exactly. have to do that to retain you? And there's all these questions that come up. So that's the other big piece that I think is so important about building a case around promotion. It forces you to, I mean, about um, negotiation is it forces you to talk about yourself in a, a promising light. And it's hard to do that again, especially as women, but it's something that we need to get better at and something that we need to do just confidently and easily. Well, so this idea that like people are just going to notice the work you do, I always kind of have to tell like my girlfriends, I'm like, if you work with mostly guys, they don't even notice what like their wife does. You think they notice what you do? Like you have to tell them because like you said, there's no incentive to give you a raise. And if you keep in mind that like, a company is a separate entity and it's its own like establishment. Like its only goal is to make money and mm-hmm. hold on to as much of it as possible. So where is the incentive to give you a raise if you're not asking for it? Mm-hmm. And like you said, like if you're just going to do the work for free, why do they have to give you a raise? Yeah. Like you're just doing it for free. You're giving you're giving them twenty thousand dollars by staying late every night and bending over backwards yes. and doing all the work. It's like I always tell people like if you keep doing the work for free, there's no incentive for them to give you a raise or there's no incentive for them to hire somebody else to do that job. Like if you're doing things yes. outside of your job description, it's like, well, why should they hire someone for fifty thousand extra dollars when you're just doing it here for free? Like there's no, again, no incentive. Yeah, that is so valid. And it leads me to think about something else. Like when women ask for a a raise and I'm sure this happens to men too a bit when they ask for a raise and they get that raise and then all of a sudden they feel their responsibilities increasing. That's another conversation because I think just because you've set the precedent that you will do the work without being compensated fairly doesn't mean that that precedent needs to just be around forever and ever. So the whole concept of like, oh, I got so much more money. Now I have to do so much more work. Like we need to debunk that too. So if that's kind of the trend that happens, then there needs to be a second conversation with your employer where you set boundaries. Even if you are promoted and that's when you get a raise and that's when you push for a raise, I understand that you'll get new responsibilities But there needs to be other people to take on some of your old responsibilities that no longer fit with your new title. I know, again, like even like I'm at a startup, so it's it's not as simple, right? Like you wear Mm -hmm. so many hats and it's somewhat workplace dependent. But for a lot of people that are at more traditional or larger corporations, there there is a structure in place. And so just keep that in mind. And if you feel like your boundaries are being crossed, vocalize it because there are resources that the company has to help you and they're not going to leverage them unless you you say something. Yeah. And like you're not being unreasonable saying that like you're doing things that you're not supposed to be doing. Like as, as women, like we want to be accommodating and we want to be helpful. So we start doing all this stuff we're not supposed to do and we don't want to ask and be like, oh, like this is something that needs to get done. 
that isn't my job. And sure, once in a while, we all step up and help when a company Mm -hmm. needs it and somebody calls out or someone else needs help. That's fine. But when it's all the time, like you said, like the company has resources and you have to tell them they need to use them to complete whatever it is that's not getting done. Yeah. Yeah. And the other piece of it, because I think a lot of women that might be listening to this, people in general that are listening to this, um, that this is where like the mindset piece really comes in because we start thinking about all the different things that could happen if we ask for things that we want, if we set boundaries. How do I even go about having this conversation with my employer without pissing them off and looking like a bad employee? One, there are definitely strategies and ways to do that, ways to communicate this. And a lot of it is mindset work. What I ask my clients to do is write down each of your fears related to this specific conversation, write down the specific scenarios and things that you think people will say. So like everything from my boss will laugh in my face to my boss will actually call me out and say, I'm greedy and I'm undeserving. And these are all very unlikely scenarios. But when you write each one out, you can also question, okay, where is that coming from? Have I ever been greedy in my life or like manifested that trait and, you know, been been greedy? And if not, then maybe that's coming from what I think, what I'm just kind of making up in my head will happen. And there's no, there's no like source of truth that this will actually take place. So you can kind of cross that off and debunk that fear a little bit. Obviously I'm simplifying it right now, but just like really documenting each of those things, thinking about where they're coming from, thinking about how laughable and maybe unrealistic they are, like all of that stuff helps and then lays the foundation and makes you more confident as you actually think about how you're going to ask for things. Yeah. And corporate structure is like extremely black and white. Like there is a route for everything. And if you work in a company that is even somewhat professional, the chances of your boss laughing in your face or calling you greedy are extremely slim because you can immediately, immediately go to HR and be like, this happened. And HR will jump right in with their lawyers and hop to it. Mm -hmm. So they know they're never going to do that. And if they do, again, you have a route to take. Unless you work in like a really small company like I have worked in where there was no HR department and I'm like, okay, now I have nowhere to go. I'm going to quit. Like most likely there's a route to take. And whatever scenario you've made up in your head is just not going to happen. And like you said, if you go in with like calm, cool, know what to expect, know how to respond and do if you need to like role play exercises and write a script, like do that. It's fine. You got to like. If anything, it'll be met with a little more respect if you can like have a back and forth and handle yourself under a little bit of pressure because then that also shows the company what you can offer them in the future. Mm-hmm. It's such a such a good point. That is that is so true. And I've I've had that happen myself um, where I was stuck in a really tough negotiation with um, the head of this division of a company that I worked at before. And I was like, this is not going to go my way. But I was also, I was very much at a point where I had nothing to lose. And I was like, I'm really upset with the very small pay bump that I got when I just gave it my all the last two years. Um, So I went in, I had my script prepared and all of the things. um, And ultimately I did get the major bump that I wanted. 
And afterwards, I learned from people that worked directly for her that she'd actually told other people that she was impressed with how I handled the conversation and that I was able to go back and forth and have that discussion. So I think what you've said is so true and like not shutting down immediately either from the first no, because this person gave me many no's and I just asked more questions and I engaged in the conversation and I asked like, why? Like what drives this? How is pay determined here? How are pay bumps determined? I'm just confused. I just want to understand all of that is just like you engaging in a conversation with someone who seems scary those people love it. Like leader, leaders yeah, they love, love it. it. <laughs> they love it. it. I think it doesn't happen often, especially from women. And I've been in the same situation. It wasn't about negotiation. It was just like a meeting about something. Mm-hmm. And I, I think one thing that does help is asking extremely concrete questions. Like don't ask wishy-washy vague questions. Ask like you said, like, well, why can't I get a pay decrease? Like how does the finances of this work? How are mm-hmm. raises determined where they have to give you a real answer. And I remember being in that room, leaving that meeting, feeling like, oh my God, that like I came across as the world's biggest bitch in that moment. I was like, (laughs) everyone hates me. He's an asshole. Like he's talking at me at this point. And literally not even 24 hours later, got an email from that person who was in the meeting that I was going at it with. And he goes, I really respect the way you handle that situation. I love, you know, there's not a lot of therapists out there that would do what you did in that room and really fight for what they thought was the right thing to do. And there's not a lot of people wow. like, and I was wow. like, wow, I thought you hated my guts. Thanks, dude. That's awesome. And so after that, I got a lot more confidence in just like saying that I do know what I'm talking about and that mm-hmm. what I'm bringing to this table, I'm at this table because I bring something to it. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I didn't just get put in this room. And so like having more confidence in any sort of situation where you feel like you need to kind of put your foot down and like owning that. Absolutely. And I love that note, just like the right, the right to be somewhere, right? Like I think a lot of us forget that we were hired, we were selected, we went through a process to be at an organization. Like what you were saying before, it's a, it's a mutual relationship. They owe us as much as we owe them. This is a working relationship. And we have every right to be at the table, voice our opinions, and ask for what we need to do our job effectively. Yeah. And I think that almost starts at the interview, right? Like, I always have to remind like my friends, they'll tell me they're going to an interview. I'm like, remember, it's a two-way street. They're not just interviewing Mm -hmm. you, you're interviewing them. I don't care if you have to make up questions. Make sure you ask them and you grill them and ask them for what you want. Like when it comes to healthcare, it's asking for things like, hey, can I shadow another therapist that has my position here? Can I talk to someone who holds the same equal position in this company that I would be taking? And you can tell them to go walk away and let me go talk to this person because they're not going to offer you to do that. You know, they're not going to be like, oh, do you want to talk to our employees? Like, you feel like you can't even do that. I'm like, no, I want to talk to them. I want to know what they think about this place without you being there. And suddenly they're like, oh, like, she's not, she knows what she's doing here. She's not just here going to, like, take whatever we give her. Yeah. Yeah, I will say, honestly, that that, you took that question right from my head because that is one of my non-negotiables now and one of my must-ask questions if I'm interviewing somewhere is let me talk to someone who is in the same role or similar similar role, has been here for a little while, 
And that's like, that has to be a part of the interview process because I don't just need and want leadership's, you know, nice description of who you all are and what you do. Yeah. And if it's virtual, like they can make it happen. They can set up a Zoom time. It doesn't matter. It's not that hard. There's no excuse for that not happening. And if Mm -hmm. they say they have no one in that position, then talk to anybody else. (laughs) Yeah. Talk to the people who would work with whoever would be in that position. Like, don't let them like give you some like bullshit answer as to why it can't happen. Because that's the thing with companies. I feel like there's just always an excuse. There's always somebody else to point to like, oh, you know, I'm not the right person to talk to about this. I'm like, yes, you are. And if I'm not, who do I talk to? And it's like, you're going to answer one or the other question, but you're not going to give me nothing. Like, I'm not walking out of this room without getting something. Exactly. I've turned into one of these people at work. Hey, you got to do it. One of these people as in like one of these empowered AF people that yeah, knows the questions to ask and the like things to do. Yeah. But, and that's, I mean, even, even that thought, right? Like, it's so funny that you say that because I have that thought too sometimes. I'm like, oh, like that was, maybe that was too aggressive or assertive. And like, maybe my tone was off. And then I'm like, would I be thinking this if I was a male or would I just be like, oh yeah, I just had a conversation. So like I'm trying to question more of those things about myself too. I don't know. There's a, there's a lot that goes into it because I love I love the sympathy and empathy that I think women inherently and just naturally embody and I think that's really powerful and I'm also all about negotiating and having tough conversations in a communication style that works for each individual woman. So like I don't think that you have to be um, overly assertive if that feels super uncomfortable to you and that's not aligned with you. Um, but as much as I love those components, like I'm like, well, I should be able to be more assertive if I want to be without questioning if I came off like mean, you know, and why do I do that so much? I think one thing that really helped me was changing my tone in emails. And I'm sure there's like a thousand TikToks on like how to write an email, like (laughs) a white guy, but like literally like no more exclamation points, no more smiley faces, no more can I or will you or could you please? It's just like a statement. Like everything I need someone to do is a statement, even if it's somebody above me. Like I don't really ask questions anymore. I just like state things. Like this morning I had to send out some emails. I'm like, please send me this and tell me the contact information of this person. Like it mm. wasn't like it wasn't rude. I still said please, but it no, wasn't like can you this, like can you whatever? Like, no, just do it. This is what can I need. You whatever, from yeah. And like, thanks so much, exclamation. Yeah, Yeah. I catch myself still. thanks, comma. I don't not say thank you. But like, that's after you do what I asked you to do, not in the first email. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And eventually you realize like people will just do those things without complaining. And so then you become more confident in that. And then it starts to translate in like the way you also just speak. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And I work with all women almost entirely. Like once in a while there's a male and I wonder why they're there. But like <laughs> generally I prefer not to work with them because every time they're in the room, the only thought I have in my head is like, why are you here? Who put you That's here? That's so funny because the, yeah, this could be a whole other conversation, but my workplace right now, at least my team is also mostly women. And it's, the best. it's so it's, great. I, I love it. I'm just like, why? I, I just like this so much. And I think a lot of people maybe listening, sometimes I've encountered friends too who don't like that dynamic because they think it's like automatically going to be 
cattier and all of these like negative words that we have yeah. for groups of women, but it doesn't have to be that way. It can if be like your all confident style. women. Yeah. You're good. You're good. Yeah. It it's just great. works. It's my, a boss, cultural my boss job emailed me thing. this week. And so I had I never work late ever as like a rule. I get all my stuff yes. done before I leave. Um, once in a while, I'll stay a little bit late, but nothing crazy. And she knows that. And the thing is, part of it is also they, because I'm hourly, they don't really want me to stay late. So they mm-hmm. like me because I always leave on time. And on Monday, I have to work. They like weren't able to schedule enough time for my paperwork. Um, but I normally also don't work on Monday. And so I had offered to go in and I was like, is it okay if I stay a little later? I know you didn't give me my doc time. Like, I don't mind like staying an extra hour. And that has never come out of my mouth because I don't ever offer that. And you know, my boss said, she goes, you're more than welcome to. I'm happy to let you stay. I just wanted to be considerate of your time. It is Valentine's Day. I was like, oh, look at you. I appreciate you. You know, and it was like, it wasn't like I expected you or like, and she came up to me and was like, listen, I wasn't able to give you enough time to do your job today. And I can try to figure out where I can put it in maybe another day. Um, But like, don't feel like you have to like stay here and do it all that day. Because it's like the precedent I have set with this company and she's a new boss is that's just how I function. And this is how I roll. You meet me where I need you to meet me. I'll do whatever you want. Yeah. And it's working. Yeah. Yeah. The power of precedence and showing up as you are and as you want to be in the workplace is incredibly powerful. And then that combined with a considerate people-oriented manager is, whoa, like, yeah, dynamic. Like, my one site, like, I love them to pieces. But again, like, it has taken time and setting those precedents and, like, everything from negotiating your pay rate to establishing what your time is worth and having conversations with your boss about who you are on this team and the role that you play and just setting that up. But me five years ago wouldn't have been able to do that. And I'm now at a place where like, I'm happy with that because you put your foot in there, said what you had to say and made sure you had the respect you deserved and the pay that you deserved at a company. And you know, one other thing that I'll just say about that, because I think that's a really important point for anyone that's listening, feeling like you have to flip the switch and embody this new, more confident boundary setting workplace person that doesn't have to be the case. And it's usually not. Like you were just talking about how it took you some years of different conversations to get to this point where it feels almost natural. And like, of course, I would set boundaries with my manager. And even for me, before that big salary negotiation conversation I had, I had other conversations in the workplace about other difficult topics, difficult managers, people that were really tough to work with, toxic work environments that I'd raised with HR. And I'd had practice in other conversations over a period of time to get me to a point now where I am the way I am and I communicate the way that I do in the workplace. And so I think that's really important to note too. If it feels overwhelming, pick one thing, whether it's a mini negotiation, maybe it's even picking one coworker that you have a trusting relationship with to have the conversation about pay transparency and what each of you make or pick um, one coworker or one manager to raise one um, 
want of yours, whether it's like a boundary of like, hey, like given my schedule and my lifestyle and like even like mental health related things, like I need to be done at five every day and just picking like one topic with one person, like there are piecemeal ways that we can start before we finally, you know, get to that point where we're powerhouse confident communicators about all the things that we need at work. Yeah, for sure. And so switching lanes a little bit here, we're getting to the part where we're negotiating or we're, you know what, we just started interviewing. A lot of employers like to do this thing where they ask, oh, what are your pay requirements? Which is like my least favorite question because I'm like, oh, this is not how we're starting. I'm like, you think I'm going to name the, the number first? You're wrong. But a lot of women feel like they do, like they have to say the number first. And at that point, it's a guessing game because you don't know what range they're looking to pay. So how do you handle that question? Yeah, this is a good one. I was actually just brainstorming about this again the other day um, because I think it happens to so many of us all the time. And like now we're in a period of, you know, the great resignation where arguably the ball is in our court and we have so much power in terms of determining our future pay at a at an organization. And so, of course, the first question that you want to ask is, would you be able to share the range for this role first um, and what you have budgeted for this role? That would be really helpful in me understanding um, and one, in me understanding the role, the level of the role, um, and to see if it aligns with my needs, but also would help me give you a more appropriate number and like adding context to that question, basically. So like, I think a lot of us ask simply, what is, can you tell me the range first or can you tell me the approximate budget? But when you add the context of like, no, like that information is going to help me give you the answer and the information that you need. I think that changes the dynamic a little bit. If they're still not wanting to give you the information Um, and depending, I hope it's at least at the end of a conversation, right? At the end of a preliminary interview or a preliminary screening, I would say, let me think about this. Let me take some time to think about it and then think through different responses. Definitely do your research. And that is, I think, if they're really forcing your hand, that is when you begin to come into a situation where you want to over ask. And that's the best case situation for you is making sure that you at least don't under ask. Worst case, if you over ask, they'll be surprised and then their true range will come forth anyway. It's not like any exactly. sort of discussion will stop. So that those are sort of the two options that the two pads that I would recommend. Yeah. The over asking part is always helpful because I feel like I end up in those situations a lot just because in the world I work in, there's a lot of negotiating hourly rates. And they'll always be like, oh, what are you looking for? And if they don't tell me, always over ask, because then immediately they'll be like, oh, well, our budget is more like in this range. And then it's like, a lot of the times I could probably still work in that range. But like, yeah, it's like, I feel like it's, it's such an annoying like power game with these things. But unfortunately, you have to learn how to play it. And it is what it is. Another reason I wanted to have you on this show because you brought it up was the great resignation. And like you said, for the first time, the workforce has a little bit of leverage in the conversation that we're the ones in demand. But at the same time, a lot of companies are learning to get things done with less people. And so suddenly, if you work at a company 
that decides we're maybe going to downsize. And you know what? That person quit, but we're not going to fill that job. Now we're going to put all this work and divide it amongst the three other people in the department. And now you're picking up more on your plate. They probably didn't give you a raise. So now you have to go in and ask for that raise. And I think that a lot of people listening might end up in that situation in the future when companies decide we're going to ask more of our fewer workers. Yeah. So you bring up a really good point. Like what it was Peloton even this week, right? 20%. 20% of their workforce was let go. And so it's a very interesting period because we're in the great resignation period. And so it's been dubbed, right, where employees are leaving. Um, but then also employers are letting people go in droves. And so it's an interesting dynamic. Um I will just say there are a few instances, I think, in life where you know you automatically have to negotiate. One of them is if you are ever given more responsibilities, you need to negotiate, like you said. If your responsibilities are changing drastically so that your role is actually something different, then it looks like there might need to be a pay adjustment. You would have to go online and research what your new role that you've been given you know, slyly over time what the pay is that corresponds with that. But if you were to negotiate um, because of the these additional responsibilities, I think you would you would really proceed like any other negotiation. And you don't have to even outright mention any sort of direct comment around the great resignation or that you know people are leaving. I think ultimately what I have recommended to some clients is you can always let the employer know that you're considering all of your options. And that's not threatening. Um, I don't believe in like threatening employers. Like if you don't give me this, then I'm going to leave. Like that never goes well. So at some point it might be appropriate to say, hey, I really just need to know, you know, where my pay is going to land with you and like where this negotiation discussion will end just because I want to understand just how open I should keep my opportunities and just thinking about my my near future. Um, so I think you would proceed like you would any negotiation. You would talk about the additional responsibilities that you've been handed and talk about why that corresponds with a higher pay. Um, and then just in the back of your head, you know that you have leverage because of the great resignation, because of this trend. Because I will say the other thing is, even though employers are letting people, some employers are letting people go in in droves and just like getting rid of like sometimes whole departments. And sometimes it's strategic discussion, um, strategic decisions, like certain specific functions just no longer align, like a product is being let go, something like that. That it doesn't change the fact that it's hard to get quality employees and competent employees. Like that doesn't change. So a part of the work that I do with people is also a thorough self-assessment. Like, let's be honest about who you are and what you do in the workplace and how good of an employee you are so that we can establish that baseline. And if it comes out that we have established you are like an extremely competent, amazing employee, it's so important for you to know that because Mm -hmm. that changes everything in a negotiation too. Yeah, definitely. And like, that's something I've only recently come into is like, realizing like, yes, I've been making been much more like vocal about like what my needs and what my demands are in the workplace, but also reminding myself that like, I'm good at my job. Like, I know what I'm doing. I'm, you know, I've been practicing for all these years now. And also having the like data to support that. Like, 
in my world, it tends to be like other doctors doing, you know, testing on the kids that I treat and they'll determine which areas they've made the most success in. And time after time, the areas they make the most progress in is OT. And guess who their OT is? This girl. And so I have the parents and their reports to vouch for like, I'm good at my job. Mm -hmm. And you like having me here because I'm good at my job. Or like, I don't stay late, not because I'm a dick. It's because I do my work in the time allotted. You give me the time, I get it done. So I'm not sitting here wasting the company's time. I'm an asset to you because I get everything done in a timely manner. I don't leave the office without my paperwork being done. So I don't have Mm -hmm. a month's worth of paperwork piled up at the end of the month when it's due. It's done. Here you go. Good luck. And it's done well, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not getting emails asking to like, can you fix this? Or you forgot to put this in. Once in a blue moon, of course that happens. But is it a regular occurrence? No. And I have proof of that. So it makes me more confident in knowing that I am an asset on this team. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a huge point. I feel like sometimes I talk to even really seasoned professionals and I ask them a question of like, hey, do you have a feedback folder or any sort of place that you're kind of keeping track of items that, you know, where people have said good things about you. And sometimes people are like, oh no, like I hadn't thought of doing that. Or even like a OneNote page of like good things that people have said, or like things that you feel like you did and you like aced on a particular day. Like keeping track of these things is so valuable because you will reference that in a negotiation, depending on how tough, especially the negotiation is. Sometimes the explanation alone is not enough. And you have to point to very specific examples of things that positive things people have said. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that so much. Yeah. Or even things like courses that you've taken or projects mm-hmm. that you have successfully completed or certifications that you got on your own time. Keeping a yeah. list of all of that because that is all an investment in yourself for the company, mm-hmm. right? Like for them, they're benefiting because you got that Google certificate or you got that or you took that course on whatever specialty. Like now this is why you're an asset because you're not just replacing me. You're trying to find somebody with these other certifications or these courses or these accomplishments. And that's going to be a lot harder now. Mm-hmm. And even emphasizing sort of the tail end of what you said of doing different things on your own time. Like I think even that, and I don't want to nitpick, but that alone is an asset. Like an employer has someone who wants to go above and beyond and do things that make them a stronger employee, that help them personally develop, professionally develop on their own time. Like that that alone is an asset and employers recognize that. So I think it's also the reason that I bring that up is because I also ask a lot of women to reframe what they view as an accomplishment. And sometimes it's the little things like that, that we just are like, no, this is what I'm supposed to do. Like, or of course I would do this on my own time. I can't do it on company time, but it's, we have to reframe things and take the things we think are are just a part of our job, but are actually truly accomplishments and note them as such. Because that is what all the white men are doing, to be really frank. They're constantly bragging about what they do. And they think they're like, even like mediocrity is enough for them. So like, one of the things I remember over the years, especially when I was younger, and I would do, you know, presentations for things, or I would had e-board positions, and I would have to talk to like the student government or whatever. And I would be in there 
doing the fucking most, okay? Like truly doing the most, not giving myself any credit for it. And all these people would always be like blown away. Like, oh, I'm one of like five different clubs presenting and I'm representing my organization. And all of a sudden, I'm apparently the most prepared person in the room. And I'm like, what? Like, I thought I wasn't ready. And I'm out here doing the most. Mm -hmm. And then when I go and, like, bring this information to, like, my organization, whatever, I remember one time, literally, like, our president, like, I told the whole, you know, group of people, I was like, okay, we got this. We acquired this funding. I got this approved for us. And whatever, said that, sat down, did my thing. And she came up and she goes, okay, she totally undersold that. Like, I just want everyone to know the people in that room were shocked at her presentation. She was the most prepared person in that room. She killed it and brought us things we didn't even deserve because she did such a good job. Like, I just mm-hmm. want you all to know that because she didn't mention any of that. She made it seem like it just happened. And I was like, oh, I really need to stop underselling myself. Yeah. So many of us do that. Like the downplaying of just what we do and It just, it's so funny because I think about myself too, like in terms of now and how I work and like five years ago, 10 years ago, high school, elementary school, like I think about this evolution and I'm so proud of myself because yeah, I did the most and that was rough and it, it was rough in that like I did the most, but it was also rewarding, right? Because other people see the value that you bring. So I wouldn't change any of that, but I'm also so grateful about where I'm at, like just to get really specific, when I get emails about certain things, I am really selective about responding, period, for my day job and when I respond. Um, So like the whole 24-hour cap, I don't think it always applies. Um, I think about things of like, okay, well, what's on my list today? Well, everything, like what, what's on my list? What will my boss notice? Like what will they think are, are the needle movers? What do I think are the needle movers? Like if my boss is being selective about their tasks so that they can be done at a certain point, that I want to be selective about my tasks. So there are sometimes weeks where I'm just like, I'm now that person where I'm like, if that person chooses to follow up, then I'll respond. But this is not, this is not a high priority and it's actually going to take me a lot of time to do it. And so let's see. Like let's let's yeah. see what happens. Um, and I do, again like not to be a jerk, but before it was very much like I have to do everything that's sent my way, and I have to do it fast, and I have to do it well. But now I'm like, no, like if other people are being selective about their how their time is spent, I also deserve to be selective. Yeah, and most of the time you're not the only person who could do it. They just like eventually figure out who they can ask to do things, and that will always get done and without questions asked. Because mm-hmm. I used to do that too. I would answer all the emails. Like I do a lot of like client management with my patients and I would get all the emails and I would respond right away and I would make sure I'd give them like these full, complete answers. And they would ask for everything. Oh, can you send this report? Can you send this documentation? Can you do this? And it like this little stuff piles up and it just becomes tedious and annoying and wastes my time. And I eventually got to a point, I'm like, what if I just don't respond? What if I just leave it? And then Guess what? Half the time they didn't follow up because they figured it out on their own. And it kind of turned like for me, like with the families I worked with, it was like you can teach a man to fish or you could give a man a fish. And if Mm -hmm. I just let them figure it out, they'll never come back and ask me the question again. But if I just hand it to them, they're just going to keep coming back. Yes. Yeah, that's that's so true. And that's applicable to so many different 
settings, work settings, personal life, all of these like things. Like it's like, okay, no, like just let it lie for a little bit and see what happens. Yeah. Give it a good 48 hours. You'll be yeah. surprised at who doesn't reach out again. Yeah. I like the 48 hour time frame. That's why uh, I buy to the 24 hour, yes. 24 hour recommendation. <laughs> um, the another question that I had for you that I'm not sure if this is something that would like fall into into your domain, but I know a lot of women feel like they get passed up for things like promotions or opportunities that they would want. What's your advice for that? Or what do you do when you feel like yeah. you got passed up for somebody else that maybe you felt like was less qualified? Yeah. Um, totally in my domain and actually will be in my extended domain, hopefully later this year or next year, because that's something else that I'm really passionate about is just women more generally in the workplace and how they navigate the workplace and what comes at us. Um, so I think, again, it's very situational. And so it's something that I would want to do a detailed assessment and have an understanding of a specific situation. But I would say generally, you can't... Um, you can't not say anything. So that's the first thing. And it may seem really basic, but when you start to notice yourself complaining to and talking about it to a lot of friends and coworkers in a negative way and you're angry, that that is enough of an indicator that you need to raise it. You can't wait until the next promotion cycle. It needs to be a discussion. So that's the first thing. And again, it seems so basic, but that's a decision point. You are deciding to have the discussion with the person that would be, you know, in charge of your promotion or the person that theoretically like passed you up for one. Um, and then build your case and having having a it's like similar to salary negotiation thinking about all the feedback that you've received, specific examples like you mentioned, um, all of the big projects that you've led, and all of the things that you feel warrant a promotion. Because clearly, if you're in this position, you're also a little bit blindsided, right? Like you've done all of the things that you feel you need to do to deserve a promotion. Put other things outside of your outside of your head. So some people are like, well, no, I know that my employer, like there was only room for one of us to be promoted. So why would I even even have the discussion if there was just an allotment of one? All of those little tidbits that you have or you think you have or assumptions that you've made, it's really important to have them set aside because the goal is just to have the discussion explain to your employer or the bot or your boss or whoever how you're feeling, why you're feeling that way, why you feel you deserve a promotion and then give them the op- opportunity to explain as well. If you want to, you can even start with that. Like, can you, can you just give me an understanding? Like the, the other big thing that I do during negotiations leading back to the authentic communication piece is, are you more of an inquisitive person? Does that approach feel more comfortable or do you want to just dive into your assertive case? So I take more of the inquisitive approach personally. Like I like asking different questions. So you can build the case, but even then you can start with the question of like, hey, like I know we recently got the promotion announcements. To be honest, I was a little bit blindsided. I think so-and-so is a great employee um, and I'm not questioning their promotion, but I'm also, I'm really just questioning um, why I wasn't promoted. Something as simple as that. Also, if you are questioning their promotion, you can get to that later then. Don't say what I said exactly. But I think just understanding like, hey, what went into that decision? What specific, to your to your point earlier, like what specific um, 
things did you all consider? Did the leadership team consider when you were making promotions? How did I miss the mark? Um, asking that question and then offering some feedback of how you feel you didn't miss the mark. So I've been in some unique situations with that as well, where actually specific skills of mine were called out as to like reasons that I didn't get a certain pay. And I explained to them like, okay, that's really interesting. Thank you so much for sharing that information. That's really helpful. But here are other things that I really excel at that I feel like some people who got a higher pay don't have. And it worked in my favor. So I feel like this answer is like a little bit rambly, but important to one, make the decision that you're going to have the discussion Two, figure out if you want to take the inquisitive approach or a more of an assertive approach. And then three, make sure you've got your case ready to talk about why you deserve a promotion. Confidence is so important in those situations. And I like the inquisitive approach because I always tell people, I'm like, just go after what you want, but also like make sure they know you want it. Because like Mm -hmm. so many employers, and if you're someone like me, who's like such a overachiever and always going after like the next thing, the idea that someone would even say no to a promotion blows my mind. But people do that. People say no to promotions. You know why? Because they don't want to take on more responsibility or maybe it doesn't work for their lifestyle because promotions usually come with more work, maybe longer Mm -hmm. hours, maybe expectations to be on call, whatever. So people do say no. And so if you make sure you're employer or your boss whoever knows like this is what you want like it puts it on their radar and it puts you on the list of people to consider and for them like they would prefer when they give it to someone they just say yes obviously it makes their life easier you know because then if you say no they're like shit now we have to find somebody else and go yeah. through this whole process again and so you're almost doing them a favor and also if it's something that you want you can also ask them like what do I have to do to get this because then it at least gives you some steps some direction to go in you can ask for the feedback and if they say like you didn't get this promotion because you're not not very good at a b and c and listen they could be right like employers aren't always just trying to like tear you down like Mm -hmm. they could be right and you can say like what can i do to improve that or can you help me improve that because like you said employers want to retain their employees like Hiring someone new costs them a lot of money and they'd rather keep you. And if you show the initiative that like you want to work on this, it shows them that like you're somebody worth investing in as well. And they'll give you the hopefully give you the tools to achieve that. And if they're not giving you the tools to your job, that's a whole other toxic situation we can talk about later. I think, yeah. And two things on that, because right after that type of conversation where they might give you feedback on things you have to work on in order to be promoted, it's important to have an accountability discussion or subsequent discussions of like, okay, great. Like, so the next time that we're not touching base on this, it can't be the next year end review. Like, can we have quarterly meetings to talk about this and my progress on these three goals? So then you're not blindsided again. And it also reminds me that, um, preemptive conversations are really helpful. So let's say you know, you know, you're up for promotion at the end of the year, then having quarterly discussions prior to that, asking like I've asked my boss like, "Hey, I just want to confirm, am I up for promotion this year?" They'll say yes or no. Um they'll say yes, but or like this and that, like what other factors are in play. But then you're having the discussion beforehand. You've planted the seed, and so you should go into that discussion kind of knowing where things are at. I had a previous boss who told me nothing at your year end should be a shock. And if it is, 
we didn't do our job right together. Like we didn't communicate well. And that is something that I still, I still believe. And I actually like apply to every, every job that I have. Yeah. Like you really shouldn't, like if you're in a regular corporate structure, like a lot of things shouldn't come as a shock because they just have so many freaking protocols and like mm-hmm. steps in the way that if they're skipping them and it comes as a shock, that's a bigger problem. There's usually like not a whole lot of like unpredictability other than like things, big things like acquisitions and whatever mm-hmm. that yeah. come out of left field. True. So from a South Asian perspective, a lot of they see women kind of and women in general let their husbands take care of the money if you're brown your husband probably works in finance and like already knows the ins and outs of the money and so you kind of like one feel like you know maybe you don't have to spend as much time negotiating at work or understanding your money and what's happening with it and that like they're the go-getter they're the ones chasing those promotions and like getting all the money and like your job is fun and like but maybe not as relevant just because you're not as involved in the financial decision making what advice do you have for that or those people love this and i'm half laughing full disclosure um so i'm i'm south asian my husband is south asian and he is has a cfa he's he's a finance person he's in uh, he's in real estate like commercial real estate in in chicago and so he is in a lot of ways, the money person. And I will say for a long time, it was a conventional, like, you do math better than I do. You know all the stuff. Like, and there's there's so many things we can unwrap, right? Like on that and like why women perceive themselves as bad at, at math and why it is that way and all of that. But in our situation, it's true for a lot, for a lot of different reasons. And so it was a very conventional relationship. Like he takes the lead on our finances. And in in many ways he still does, but I am definitely inserting myself more. I will say that the negotiation that I had years ago now and the strides that I've made in negotiation since then, like have been really empowering and make me want to be at the table more, even in my home life. And like, I want to understand things more. I want to know like, okay, all of this additional money, thankfully that we're bringing in, how do we invest this and make it grow together? And like, and I want to learn about it. And so in a lot of ways, though, our relationship about money and around money was pretty conventional. Um, I, I want to learn more about it and I'm trying to learn more about it. And I think that it's really important because at the end of the day, like no one knows what the future will hold. Like we, we need to have an understanding of our individual finances, our finances as a couple. And it only makes us stronger if we both have an understanding of what's going on rather than one of us. Like it's like, why? And also two heads are better than one. I think women fundamentally approach concepts in a different way than men um, in a way that's helpful. Like having two different perspectives on what to do with one part of your finances or how to manage this part of your finances is really important. So I think 
a lot of women kind of, you know, cast themselves aside in terms of like, well, I don't understand investing or I don't, I don't want to, or like, it doesn't interest me, but thinking about just the long-term growth as a couple and like what you want in life and like lifestyle design, like even thinking about the parts of it that make it more fun for you. So for a big thing for me is like lifestyle design. So like, what do I need to do in order to get to a point where I am, and we are living a life that we want. If it's like travel heavy or, you know, having, another property in a warm place because we're in the Chicago tundra. Like all of these things are related to your finances ultimately. So I, long way of saying I'm a big proponent of both individuals in a couple being involved, even if it's slow involvement over time. Um, and it doesn't always have to be equal and perfect, but I think having that understanding is just so important. Exactly. And my husband also works in finance, so I definitely let him manage most of it because like you said, I just don't have the time or the energy to like learn everything. And I've been better at like learning more about it. But if anything, a way that I've kind of inserted myself more is just like telling him that like, I just want to know what's going on with our money. Like, cause we have like, he'll, he set up like all these other accounts and different things and stock things. And I had no idea, like literally, like I was like, wait, what is that where this is? Like, and he's like, yeah, like I have a percentage of like all the checks going in different places. Like it's automated. Like that's what you see in our bank account. And but now he's been better about like this is what's happening and explaining it all to me and why this is. And I still come to him with like random finance money questions and he'll actually take the time to like break it down and be like why this is a good idea, why this isn't, while also giving me like the financial freedom to like make my own decisions. Because in the beginning of our relationship, I would do a lot of like asking about like what I can spend money on or how much money I can spend. And mind you, like there was a good point in our relationship where I was always making more money than him. And he's like, mm-hmm. he's like, you don't have to ask me. He's like, do whatever you want. <laughs> he's like, so you you. interesting. I love, yeah, I love hearing about like how couples are also doing, um, how are they doing their money thing? Like what, what is happening? And so like, I will share that like my husband and I, we have individual accounts and then we have a joint account and like, it's all like, it just works for us and it's percentaged out in different ways, kind of like you were alluding to. But I think, you know what, the other thing that comes to mind, and at least for me as a first gen South Asian woman, very much have this feeling like I am my parents' retirement plan and like that is that is somewhat a reality for sure for me. And so of course us together as a couple jointly will take care of both of our parents whatever they need. That's just our view on it. Um and but also it's different when you have an understanding, you like your own understanding of your joint finances and of your individual finances and if you're responsible for certain of your parents accounts, like knowing how to grow that appropriately with input from your significant others. Sure. But like, there are things that I'm increasingly responsible for that kind of necessitate me understanding. And there's just a lot that goes into it. And like, it's just easier if I have somewhat of a, a sense. I don't know if I'll ever be as into it as some of the other women out there, unfortunately. Like, I don't know if I'll ever get into like the ins and outs of the stock market and like being really excited about it. Maybe I will. But I want to get to a point where I at least like know how things are progressing and like maintain an interest in that. So I will just say the last thing, my husband and I have a a few quarterly meetings in place. And one of the t- quarterly types of meetings that we have is a quarterly finance meeting. 
um, because it forces us to talk about things, at least on a quarterly basis. Do we always abide by it? Not necessarily. But when we do, it's always helpful. Like we realign, we talk about our goals. Are we on track? Um, how's this looking? Like if there are finance questions that I had that I've been putting off asking him, then I ask those. If he has questions, like like all of these things, I think like even setting some sort of a cadence for yourself as a couple is helpful, I think. Yeah, Mike and I do that like every year. At the end of the year, we kind of look that. at like the money and we set some goals for the future for like the upcoming year and like, okay, what do we have to do to meet that goal? What percentages are we putting where? You know, are we like you said, are we on track to hit those things? And okay, this is how much money we're gonna put in our savings account and our goals to grow it to this much. And this is what we have in stocks. Yes. And when are we gonna buy? When are we gonna sell? What are we doing with this? Whatever. Um yeah. and it's about as much as I get involved with the money, but for me, the interesting part was because my partner is not South Asian, the way he was raised to think about money and deal with money was very different than I was. And to an extent, I'm grateful for it because he's made me much more confident with my money and being more and also like at work and stuff because I hear about how he deals with like the corporate structure as his job. And Lord knows his company worships the ground he walks on. And I'm like, why? <laughs> like, I love you. And I'm sure you're good at your job. But like, why? <laughs> and I make the joke, I'm like, you'll be CEO within the next 10 years. Like, they're obsessed with That's you. That's amazing. Um, but his mom, who has been a business owner her whole life, she started her own company when she was like 29 and for the last 40 years ran it. And for her, like, total feminist back in like the 70s and 80s when women weren't even supposed to have kids and run a business and like all mm -hmm. that stuff. And we can, you know, get into that. But like, She's the one who's always kind of pushed me and been like when we were managing our finances and we had gone and opened a joint bank account and she goes to me, she's like, you need to always have your own account. She's like, love my son. Obviously, he's my son. But he's like, you should never, ever feel like you can't spend money on whatever the hell you want. I don't care if you want to buy a $10,000 Louis Vuitton bag. You should never feel like he gets to say and how you yes. spend your money. Yes. And she's like, may, have your own account so you can do whatever you want. I don't care if you want to buy candy every day with it, but like have it so you don't ever feel like you have to ask him. Yes. It's like she would I, see me asking yeah. him and she's like, no, 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 we don't do that. So fascinating. So interesting. So, so yeah. And like ultimately how you spend your individual account, like that's ultimately on you. And like it, I just love that it's like a completely separate, distinct, um, decision. And even for us, like we don't, we don't really like go through at the end of the month. Some couples I think do, but like, you know, like whatever groceries from here or there, like it doesn't matter. Like if I, I don't want to reconcile every little thing, it's fine. But knowing that if I want to buy something crazy expensive, I can just do it. And even then fine. If it comes out of joint account, my husband is like, I literally don't care where that comes from, but just it's a level of comfort that I'm able to have then of being like, well, no, I know, I know you don't care and it's all fine, but I love that I can just do it too. And so, yeah, it's a powerful and important feeling, I think. Yeah. And like also having that relationship, right? Like having that relationship with your partner where like our husbands really don't care. Like, I don't care what you buy, spend whatever you want. Like if it comes mm -hmm. out of our joint account, whatever. Like yeah. he's like, He's like, I trust you that you're not going to go and like do something ridiculous, obviously. Yeah. Like, he's like, you're my wife. And if I didn't, we would have a discussion about that. But he's like, I don't run that account. He's like, first of all, it's in your name. You're the primary holder in that account. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. You're right. But like, he <laughs> reminded me of that. Yeah. Um, and like, just having 
coming from two different cultures where like my parents, when it came to money, were always like, only buy what you need. Don't buy frivolous things. It was always, do you need that? Then buy it. And then I have someone like Mike's mom who's like, if you want it, just buy it. I've never thought about that before. That, yeah, that comes into like the scarcity and abundant mindset, I feel like a little Mm -hmm. bit too. And I feel like so many South Asian people grow up with scarcity mindset of like, just buy what you need. And, you know, because X, Y, Z, penny saved is a penny earned. And I think all of these things are important values, but sometimes when they're to an extreme, it can be really difficult to get out of that. And like, I'm in the same boat where I feel like I still have to actively work on it. And so like my test is like, okay, if I see something and I want it and I'm still thinking about it, like the next couple of days, like I'm going to get it and it's okay. Like money, I like, I'm trying to think about, you know, all of those um, affirmations of like money is an energetic flow of like an exchange. (laughs) And I like tell myself these things. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to sometimes just like get the thing and like, or get the service that you need. Like even for my business, like I had to really be open to investing in myself and in things that I would need. And it was new for me because outside of conventional, like four-year education and master's degree and those types of things that of course our parents are like, it's okay to spend money on formal education, but outside like services, those other things, um, it just felt like, well, is this a waste? Like, I don't for sure know what's going to happen, right? And if this is going to work and like what the long-term gain is here, but getting into that abundant mindset of like, it's okay. And like, you're allowed to like try these different things and it'll all be okay from a money perspective is is big. Yeah. I struggled a lot with that when I first started like my little side business and investing in myself and, you know, thinking like, oh, well, I shouldn't buy these things because I can figure out how to do it on my own. Or like even things like buying inventory, like having enough to sell, like being scared to buy more than like 20 of something because it's like, well, what if I can't sell them? Then I like whatever. And like realizing I'm like, wait, but now if I want my business to grow, I have to, you have to buy the inventory. You have to buy the high quality materials. You have to spend more money on this. You have to have good packaging. Like, all of those things and like being more like analytical about like I kind of look at spending money as like an investment and Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be like a stock investment but like if this is going to add value to my life or value to my business then it's worth spending you know like even as simple as like my work clothes like this is an investment in my job because I need them to last Also, I need my patients to think I know what I'm doing and sometimes appearances have to do with that. And so it is – but it's like for me, because I was also raised with that scarcity mindset, like that has made it a lot easier to spend money without feeling guilty about it Mm -hmm. if I keep framing it in the way like it's adding value to my life. And it can be as simple as like I bought coffee today because – I wanted to and it makes me happy and I need the coffee right now. Yes. Like, yes. It is what, like, I don't have to justify why I bought coffee, but it does make me happy. And that's enough. That's enough to consider it an investment. Agreed. Like, it can be a tangible or intangible value in your life. Like, it can be for your mind. It can be something that you can, like, see and touch. It can be something for your body, well being, like, any of it. Like, if it's improving you, even the side hustle itself, like, there's very tangible value, like, growth in your business, but also having an outlet, like a creative outlet to try different things and learn about yourself and develop more personally 
is like big and that's, that's value. So yeah. Exactly. I feel like we've covered a lot today. We have. Good point to wrap it up. But if you had some words of wisdom or something you would like to share with the audience, what would it be? You know, I think just going back to negotiations and tough workplace conversations. So negotiations, um, having to call out a toxic manager or just something unsettling in the workplace, like all of the skills that you would use for a negotiation are applicable to these different discussions. And all of it is ultimately, my sister will love this, linked to self-worth. So the foundation of having these discussions, a lot of it is linked to self-worth because from when I talk to women who don't want to have the discussions, it's because they feel like they don't deserve whatever boundaries or whatever pay increase would come of that conversation. So I think really my words of wisdom is to evaluate where you are at from a self-worth perspective if you are having a really challenging time wrapping your mind around the possibility of negotiating or the possibility of, you know, like I said, calling out a toxic manager and doing these different things. Just remember that you are a person and how you're treated matters on so many different levels. Um, So I don't know if it's words of wisdom as much as it is like general life advice. And then just remembering that when you do prepare for a negotiation, Um, and like scripted out and all of these things, again, even that type of approach is applicable to so many things in life and so many conversations in life in the workplace and outside of the workplace. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. If people needed to find you online, where could they find you? I am at thepayweedeserve.com. And then thepayweedeserve is also my handle on TikTok and Instagram. Perfect. And as always, that will be linked in the show notes. Thanks so much for being a guest. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. Make sure if you enjoyed this episode, you leave us a review on iTunes. You can find the show on all major streaming platforms. You can find me on Instagram at disha.mazeppa. You can shop my Etsy shop, Disha Mazeppa Designs. Find out everything you want to know about this show at dishamazeppa.com. And if you or someone you know would like to be a guest, you can email bwpspodcast at gmail.com. And I'll see you guys next time. Bye. This podcast is hosted and produced by Disha Mystery Mazeppa. Music for the show was created by Crexwell.